This is In Front of Our Eyes. This is a watershed moment for the whole nation. I mean, they had no other choice, really. Because of the people in Minnesota is why the whole world shifted. We need policies to hold police accountable. One of my first thoughts was justice for Dante Wright. I'm Nina Moyni. Police officers are rarely charged, let alone found guilty, of murder. But this week, for the first time in Minnesota history, a white on-duty officer was convicted of murdering a black person, George Floyd. Crowds gathered in downtown Minneapolis as Judge Peter Cahill read the verdict. And cheers erupted, too, just south of downtown at the site where Derek Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. Find the defendant guilty. This is uh, something special, you know, for our community, for our people, um, for people who have dealt with police brutality like me. Zach King was among those who gathered at 38th in Chicago to hear the verdict. He was beaten by Minneapolis police officers about 10 years ago for carrying a gun he had a legal permit to carry. Three years later, he won a settlement from the city of Minneapolis. His wife, Melissa King, says they followed the trial, even when it was hard. Yeah. Yeah, we were we were watching it pretty closely. Um, there were some some parts that, you know, we just couldn't. It was just kind of hard to watch just because of what we went through with him. And it's it just, you know, so it just brings back a lot of memories and anxiety. And We just want to enjoy the, uh, the good feeling that we're having right now in this moment right now and soak this in, you know, and then we got to deal with what's next. By what's next, he's referring to the case of Dante Wright, the 20-year-old black man who was shot and killed by a white Brooklyn Center police officer while the trial was going on. Zach King says now he wants to fight for justice for Wright's family, too. I'm going to bring in our reporters, John Collins and Brant Williams, here. They've been closely following the trial. I spoke with them earlier this week and asked them about how, in the aftermath of Dante Wright's death, George Floyd's family has come together to support and advocate for Wright's parents and the mother of his child. In some ways, the uniting of these two families, John says, is not surprising. I think this trial brought together a lot of people who have worked on issues of police accountability and a lot of people who've been personally impacted by police use of force, say their relative being killed by a police officer. So it makes sense that the Wright family and that Floyd's family would come together and have a unified sort of message about this. And I don't know if I've ever told this publicly, but the day after Floyd was killed, I talked to his aunt and I actually Unfortunately, I'm the one who informed her about Floyd's killing. And even after that, she just had you know, a very generous attitude and very gregarious. And she said that his entire family is like that. They just have this uh, very open and generous way of being. And um, I think we saw that in some of these press conferences and, and some of the statements of uh, his family 
and their attorneys, as well as the statements on the stand of George Floyd's brother. And Brant, you were in court. Uh, That's an experience in itself. But these family members had to relive the death of George Floyd from different angles, uh, you know, uh, with audio so many times. And I just wonder uh, if you had a chance to talk to any of the family about that and and what you heard. Right. Well, on the the day that I was in the courtroom during the, the trial testimony, uh, Rodney Floyd was sitting in the courtroom during the afternoon, and he was in there for a part of, there was still some of the video of, um, some of the body cam video of the arrests uh, being shown. And I, I kept trying to keep my eyes on Rodney as he, he was kept looking down. He had a small yellow legal notepad in his lap that he would occasionally scribble notes on. Um, I couldn't tell if he would uh, be looking up at the screen at all. But, um, you know, he was obviously reacting, um, although subtly. And during a break, I was uh, in the hallway and another reporter, uh, Mel Reeves from The Spokesman, um, we both approached him and just to, you know, see if he'd be willing to talk to us at some other point. And he was graceful. Um, He was willing to say a few things to us, just that he was, uh, you know, having another hard day um, sitting there watching this. but. As you can imagine, um, that's a hard, a very hard situation for any family member to be in. And, you know, especially this family who is living their grief in public, in a very public way, for the whole world to see. And the way they handled this, I think, also kind of stood out. Um, their, their their personality and their, and their uh, character kind of stood out, I think. Uh, as people under undergoing a, a horrible thing in public and 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 being you know extremely graceful and and calm and throughout the trial uh, they had to endure uh, not only the video but also different uh, medical testimony different testimony about a uh, use of force but uh, one of the most striking things, and I believe the last thing that the jury heard, and I just want to read it, is from one of the prosecutors, Jerry Blackwell, who delivered the, the rebuttal and in, in closing arguments. And he said, uh, you heard testimony that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. And then he later went on to say, and the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. And I just found that to be a very striking last thing for jurors to hear. And I wondered outside the courtroom, as everybody was listening in there and, and around the world, uh, what the atmosphere was like uh, before. And then uh, the next day, what the atmosphere was like when the verdict was announced. Well, I think you saw in Minneapolis, and Brent probably saw this too, downtown I left the media center and the streets were already full of people. There were cars honking. There was music that was playing. People were setting up stereos. As I was like walking over to our Minneapolis bureau, people were bringing and unloading grills, barbecues, uh, a celebration. And there was a demonstration, you know, uh, um, you know, the people who were down there marched through downtown and then other folks gathered at 38th in Chicago and they celebrated as well. But there was not any unrest and there was not any damage that I heard about or saw 
to any buildings even and no confrontation with police. Police were not visible. For the most part, the people that I talked to and that my colleagues talked to expressed a sense of relief. But the, again, we are in another waiting period because we have the other three officers who are charged in George Floyd's killing about to go on trial in August. And then we also don't know what's going to happen with Dante Wright and the uh, former officer who was charged in his killing. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. But overall, I feel like the city of Minneapolis feels a sense of relief, and if not joy about the actual verdict, at least. And Brant, I also heard a lot of uh, the sentiment of relief, but then uh, back to work. There's a lot more work to be done. And, and you've been covering Minneapolis uh, City Hall, the city of Minneapolis for for a long time. And I just wonder what it's like for you covering this city now um, compared with the rest of your career when when there are so many questions still about police reform. And, and where do you sort of see this going at this point? What's what's the work that's left to be done? Right. Well, one of the main sentiments that I heard, um, and like John, I was downtown uh, after the ver- before and after the verdicts were read, and I, I did hear people char- chanting that they still had one more cop to prosecute or to convict in in that it's in the Dante Wright shooting. And this the sense that I've gotten um, in, after this case is that people do not want to let the Minneapolis Police Department off the hook. Uh, their activists are very adamant that Derek Chauvin is not just a bad apple, that he is a um, part of the root of the tree um, that has um, contributed to this, this the atmosphere in Minneapolis um, for generations. And that is something that um, I think perhaps after this conviction, people will be more emboldened to push back um, young people like Darnella Frazier, who took that video, who at the time when she testified said that she was not a confrontational person. She is not the type of person who would stand up and yell at somebody. She was not yelling at Chauvin to get off of George Floyd's neck. But she proved that, you know, that you can make a difference just by being there and being present and being aware. And that may embolden, you know, more people, young people like herself uh, to be a presence, to to maybe even speak out more, to um, be involved. Uh, and that's what I think some of the activists that I've been hearing from have been heartened by, mostly by the Chauvin convictions. And so we'll see what happens in the future. But I have a sense that people, are, th- these activists and these um, community activists are going to be pedals to the metal. They're going to keep pushing for change. I'm often inspired by the youngest people among us, and and they have so much to teach um, adults a lot of the time. But to your point about continuing on um, in activism, you know, we have elected officials, uh, mostly from the the DFL. We have a governor who is is talking about it not being safe to be a black person in Minnesota, but we also this week saw uh, news releases or statements out by some of the the foremost uh, police unions in our state talking about how they want the, the, as they put it, race baiting and the pandering by local elected officials and different elected officials to stop. 
And something that keeps me up at night, honestly, is as a person who lives here, and I'm sure you both feel the same way, is that that's a huge disconnect. That if we can't talk about race uh, in the equation, how are we to move forward and bridge gaps? And I just wondered, uh, Brant, where do you see this going when there there seems to be such a disconnect there? Well, um you know, moving forward, there there are some signs, uh, again, that there may be some changes there. As people are well aware, um, for a while, for a long time, the Minneapolis Police Department's um, union was headed by a man named Bob Kroll. He's no longer there. Uh, he's been replaced by uh, Cheryl Schmidt. And I, I don't know what's on her agenda for perhaps trying to mend some of these um, longstanding rifts between the police department and community. But there is a process that is ongoing right now between a group of community members and the, the union um, to to bring about some changes to MPD policy to prevent um, further uses of unnecessary uses of force and, and likely um, in custody deaths. So, yes, there, there are times we see these these types of releases from the Federation that um, sound tone deaf, um, but perhaps changes afoot. And we did see during this trial that um, a divide between that police union sort of mentality that we're used to and at least the officials and officers who testified from the Minneapolis Police Department, including Chief Madeira Arredondo, who testified against Derek Chauvin. So there is the possibility that there is a cultural shift in the Minneapolis Police Department. And when people ask, is that actually going to happen? Uh, my only answer is time will tell. <laughs> we're, we're only going to find out from how the police department uh, exercises its relationship with the community. But on top of that, we also have processes at the city level to change the charter. So the, that whole, you know, discussion from last year about defunding the police and, you know, re-envisioning public safety, that is still ongoing at the city level. And voters are probably going to get the chance to weigh in on whether they want, you know, this new city council department of public safety, or if they want to keep the police department intact and and just try to change uh, some of its policies and practices and cultures. And then on the uh, state level, there is a bill that has made some progress at the legislature that is strongly supported by the governor. And then on the federal level, we have not only federal civil rights charges pending against Derek Chauvin, but we have the Department of Justice saying they're going to do a patterns and practices um, investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department, which could result in court-enforced changes to the Minneapolis police. So we don't only have the verdict, we have multiple levels of government at least responding, and none of them are pretending to be cure-alls, but they're all positioning themselves to at least change the police policing as we know it in the city of Minneapolis. So just because Derek Chauvin uh, was convicted it doesn't mean that this process is over, right? We know that Judge Peter Cahill has uh, some weeks before him to decide on a sentence. John, what may that look like? What are the parameters there? Well, Chauvin's going to get sentenced in about eight weeks. And the prosecution in this case has asked for the judge to consider five aggravating factors. 
So the presumptive sentence is about 12 years for the top charge that he was convicted of. But the judge has leeway to sentence him to more or less if he wants. And so the question is going to be exactly how much is the judge going to uh, consider these aggravated factors and how much time in prison is Derek Chauvin actually going to serve? John Collins and Brant Williams, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Brant mentioned Darnella Frazier. She was 17 when she hit record on her cell phone. Her video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd as the man begged to breathe was quickly shared and viewed everywhere. Some have said that video made all the difference in this one case of a black man being killed by police. After the verdict, she wrote on social media, I just cried so hard. Thank you, God, she continued. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Around that same time, at a press conference shortly after the verdict, Philonis Floyd reflected on what his brother's death meant for history. He spoke about the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955. Till, he said, was the first George Floyd. Today, you have the cameras all around the world to see and show what happened to my brother. And I could do nothing but watch, especially in that courtroom over and over and over again as my brother was murdered. Times, they're getting harder every day. Ten miles away from here, Mr. Wright, Dante Wright. That's right. Yeah. He should still be here. We have to always understand that we have to march. We will have to do this for life. We have to protest because it seems like this is a never-ending cycle. I'm going to put up a fight every day because I'm not just fighting for George anymore. I'm fighting for everybody around this world. I get... Calls, I get DMs, people from Brazil, from Ghana, from Germany, everybody, London, Italy, they're all saying the same thing. We won't be able to breathe until you're able to breathe. Today, we are able to breathe again. This episode was produced by Megan Burks, Brita Green, and Nancy Liebens. Reporting by Brant Williams, Reham Fisher, Matt Sepik, Tim Nelson, and John Collins. Laura Ewan edits our coverage. Nancy Yang, Paul Tosto, and Michael Olson are our digital editors. We had technical help from Alexander Simpson. Our theme music is by Gary Meister. Thanks for listening. I'm Nina Moyni.